You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message by Pastor Terry Riley, titled Strength in Life, from the series Character Counts. For more information, visit creekside.org. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 5, excuse me, Galatians chapter 5. Just want to launch off from where we've been, and we have two weeks to go. We have today and then one more week in this series. Paul's writing to a church and he's talking to them about their freedom. He's talking to them about their life in God and their life in the Spirit. And we're going to kind of jump in here. We've read it a couple of times now, but if you would pick it up in verse 19, he says, chapter 5 of Galatians. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. It's sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing. Anything similar about which I tell you in advance. Don't you like that? He's basically saying, listen, anything that I, listen, I can't even list all this stuff. But here's just a sampling. And he says, there's a whole lot more. He says, those who practice such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a strong statement there. But I think that it's important that we don't gloss over. Uh, I won't be talking on it this morning, but it's just a, it's kind of a, slap the slack out of your sales statement that God's serious about these things. And then he says, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, guidance, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So today we're looking at the eighth of nine, which is gentleness. Another word for gentleness that is used throughout the New Testament is meekness. It's really important that, that you know, we, we have a tendency to see these two things. We, we, we have a tendency to see what, I want you to understand what meekness and gentleness isn't. Many confuse meek with weak or meekness with weakness. But godly meekness really requires great strength. I mean, consider physically, if you were badly injured and you needed someone to gently carry you, wouldn't you want someone who is really strong, (laughs) that they wouldn't be weak and a person who might stumble or clumsily struggle with you as you are are, are hurt? You want someone that's strong and they can take care of you. Gentleness and meekness, really, they're the same word. They're just used interchangeably based on translations because um, the, the earlier translations would use the word uh, meekness, but we don't use that word much anymore, so they just decided to go with gentleness. But as I use that word, it's pretty much the same in terms of the usage in Scripture. It's certainly not weakness, but it's not passivity. People would see this as, as a picture of someone who just passively sits back. They won't make a decision. They won't move forward. They won't do what's needed. And they simply become a welcome mat for everybody around them. Kind of a case, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. And that's not the idea of it either. What it is, it is strength or power that is under the control of something or someone else. When the New Testament was originally written in the Bible, the, the New Testament, It was written in a language called Koine Greek, which was really the common man's language. It was a pretty simple language, yet it really had great word pictures of words that the Greeks 
would use. It had careful definition. And the word here that's used for meekness, for gentleness, is the word pros. And it has this idea of power under control. And the Greeks would often illustrate it with the picture of a horse, of a wild horse that had been tamed. And so to them, gentleness was an animal that was very powerful, but it was now completely under control. As a youngster, I remember going to the Canby Fair in Rodeo. And while a lot of people liked, you know, the, the riding the bulls and the clowns and all the barrels and everything, I, I just loved watching these horses because we would usually sit fairly close. And we'd see these cutting horses. We'd see these horses. We'd go through these reining activities. And it was really impressive because I would just sit there and literally I was close enough where you could hear the snorting. You could hear the start and the stop as they kind of slide through the dirt. You could see the power the, of the muscles just as they would make a quick stop, make a quick run, cut to the left, cut to the right. It was just really amazing to watch these massive, incredible animals and to watch them cut calves you know, out of, the, out, of the, out of the group of calves or keep it going a certain way and redirect it when they would run these precise patterns and circles and spins and stops. And I just remember sitting there. You could almost feel the power. You could definitely see it and sense it. These were impressive animals. This horse was so responsive. And what was it responsive to? It was simply totally in tune with the one that was riding it so that it was able to perform all of these movements. So this horse, it was guided and controlled, oftentimes by this rider who would just simply pull a little bit on the reins. Or maybe it would just whisper something into its ear or make a, make a little sound. And that's what would move this horse with such power and agility and great speed. That's the idea that the Greeks had even for power under control. I want to give some biblical context of a couple of examples of some, of, of some men who were meek, gentle, power under control. If you turn to Numbers chapter 12, you'll see the first one. It's a guy named Moses. Now, Moses has been leading God's people. And all of a sudden, he has two people, his brother and his sister, that kind of are kind of speaking him down. They're dissing him. They're rebelling. And they're questioning his leadership. And so that's what we're going to see here in Numbers chapter 12. It says, now Miriam and Aaron, they criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman that he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. See, it's kind of like good preachers. They always repeat themselves, right? Even God does that. Well, they said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? So now they're questioning God and they're questioning, hey, why just them? Does he not also speak through us? And it says, well, the Lord heard it. Now, Moses was a very, very humble man, meek, gentle man. More so than any man on the face of the earth. Imagine that. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. And then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud and he stood at the entrance to the tent and he summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them came forward, he said this. So he calls the three out, and then he says, okay, now I want to talk to you two. So God's going to get in their grill here a little bit. He says, listen to what I say. If there's a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak to him in a dream. Uh, not so with my servant Moses. He's a little different. 
This is a little different situation. You know what he's really saying is I'm God and you're not. He's pulling the God card. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my household. And I'm going to speak to him directly, openly. And I'm not going to speak to him in riddles or visions. He sees the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Well, what, what gives you the right to think you can talk or speak to him and respond to him this way? It says the Lord's anger burned against them and he left. Now what's interesting, it says, and as he left as the cloud, which is God's presence to them back then, moved away from the tent. Miriam, the sister, her skin suddenly become diseased and was white as snow with leprosy. And as Aaron turned toward her, he saw that she was diseased and said to Moses, my Lord, please don't hold against us this sin that we have so foolishly committed. What's interesting is, is probably she was probably the ringleader. That's why God said, I'm going to deal with you, Miriam. And so she ends up contracting leprosy. Please don't let her be like a dead baby whose flesh is half eaten away when she comes out of this mother's wombs. Verse 13, then Moses cried out to the Lord God, please heal her. And the Lord answered Moses. And after doing a few things, what they oftentimes had to do with people with leprosy, God ends up healing Miriam. You remember Moses? He's an interesting person, isn't he? He's one of the greatest prophets, really, of the Old Testament. He was meek. It says he was the most meek, humble men, man on earth. But isn't it interesting that in his first 40 years of life, what did he do? He killed an Egyptian while protecting another Hebrew because he was Hebrew. As a leader of God's people called, he grumbled and he complained about the people that he was leading who were grumbling and complaining about his leadership. He argued with God about his calling. God, I can't do it. I'm not the one. I can't talk. And God says, well, you're still going to do it. But he's meek. He's humble. But he's not perfect. He has to grow into this idea of meekness. I mean, the guy was a murderer. And then we see this example of how he's really meek, how he's gentle, how he's tender as he deals with Aaron and Miriam, his brother and sister, because they were basically dissing him. They were showing him disrespect as God's leader. What's interesting is you see is the first thing that is said is, you know what they say they're ticked about? Is because he married a Cushite woman, which would have been an Ethiopian. His first wife, Zipporah, had probably died, and so now he remarries. And they're saying, hey, that's why we're really ticked about him, because she's not of the Hebrew faith. But then you really get to the core. This is the issue. You know what? They're envious of him. And they start to question God and God's sovereignty and God's calling and God's choosing because they say, why does he get to do this and not us? Why is he the leader and not us? Why is he the one you speak to and not us? I mean, is he the only one you're going to talk to? And God says, yes. That's the way it is. And God is dealing with Miriam. People say, well, whoa, oh boy, that's a pretty big deal to get so upset because she's upset about who Moses married. But really God's saying this is how much he despises the sin of envy in our lives because of the destructive nature that it can begin to have. And so that's why he, that's why he disciplines Miriam the way that he does. But here's the thing. Notice what Moses does. Moses is the most powerful man at that time, basically. I don't know about you, but he could have used that power to say, tough rocks, honey. 
Guess what? You get what you deserve. You mess with God's plan. What's going to happen? Hey, God did it, not me. But what does he do? He takes this power that he has and doesn't use it against her, but he uses it for her. And he cries out to God and he says, God, would you heal her? And that's what God does. See, that's what a meek person, that's what a gentle person does. I believe that's why God is so pleased with Moses because he says, God, would you, would you deliver her even though it's based on her own consequences, but would you deliver her from this? And we see this spirit of gentleness in Moses. It's been said that power corrupts, absolute power totally corrupts. See, all of us in this room have probably given different degrees of power <clears throat> in our lives. And isn't it interesting to watch people and how they use and handle power in their life? It can be difficult to handle with really simplicity and and humility and not abuse it. It's really interesting because sometimes you give people a sense of power in areas of their lives and it's amazing how quickly you can go south because they're not used to it and they get this control and this power thing going. Now, failure is difficult to handle for many, but I really believe success is more difficult. Because see, when you fail, you're kind of at the bottom. Your, your, your options become very limited. But the more successful you become, the more powerful you become, the more options you have. And that can be a dangerous place for people if they don't understand this power under control. So watch people with power and authority. How do they use it? Are they going to use it to build up or to put down? Moses uses it to build up. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians toward the end in chapter 12, he says in a couple of different places, the, the, the church of Corinth was attacking him and his authority and they were attacking what he is doing and his motives and he writes to them and he says in a couple of places, he says, listen, it doesn't really matter what you say, I'm the apostle and this is what I want you to know. I am going to use my authority to build you up, not put you down. See, that's a man who has power under control. How about Jesus? Scripture is very clear. It says that he came in meekness. He came in meekness and he was submitted to his father. This is what Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says. All of you, Jesus is speaking to the multitudes here. And he says, all of you, take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. The idea there again of gentle is gentleness, meekness. And you will find rest for yourselves. This is the only autobiographical description that we have of Jesus by himself, about himself. And what does he say? I'm meek and I'm humble in heart. And what's he doing? He's really inviting us. He says, listen, I want you to take my yoke, which is something that you would strap on to, to animals to hold them together. He says, be strapped to me. Walk with me so that you can learn this idea of humility and gentleness. In Matthew 21 Chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 5, there's this prophetic statement about Jesus' triumphal entry as he heads into Jerusalem to die. And it says this about Jesus. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. And we see throughout Jesus' life, although he could turn it over, couldn't he? He could turn the tables over in the temple and cause some serious issues. But it was always about the religious people, and it was always about the abuse of religion that he did that, that he became strong. But the rest of the time, when Jesus was dealing with people and with sinners, 
there was always this humility and gentleness about him. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, it's on this, he's coming in humbly as a donkey. Listen, we know he could have called fire down on these people. He could have done anything to extricate himself from having to die. Literally, he could have called the angels down from heaven, but he doesn't. Why? He doesn't leverage his power for his own benefit. He just simply says, I'm going to trust the sovereign father who is at work in me and through this situation. I don't have to look out for number one. I don't have to leverage my power because I know that there's a greater power to me that I'm submitted to. And that's also kind of the idea of this cross, that, that I'm going to be submitted to somebody who's greater to me than me. There's two things about growing biblically and biblical meekness and gentleness. It's only by God's grace that it happens. Because I don't know about you, but it's not generally for most of our personalities, for some, but it's really not our personality to be humble and meek. I am not generally a humble and meek person. I have to work at it. And some of you, so do some of you, don't you? I mean, just listen, just read Galatians 5, and he says you've got all these other things that are warring and fighting against it. So it has to be this work of God's spirit in your life. And then secondly, there has to be this conscious effort and decision that says, I'm going to cooperate with God, that I'm going to use my power and my position. I'm going to choose to submit myself and that power in my life to one that is higher in me and that it becomes directed by God's spirit. So I want us to look at five traits of gentleness at work. And I'm using this acrostic at power because I thought about what are the areas in our lives that we have power that we always have to watch over and submit it to the, the guidance and work of the Holy Spirit. And the first one is our personality. A, a gentle and meek person takes their personality that God has given them and they place it under God's direction. Now think of Jesus' closest friends, Peter, James, and John. I mean, this was a trio to draw to. And, and, and God, I think, teaches us through them that this is such a process in a journey that, that, that it takes time to develop not only the other seven or eight traits, but this one of gentleness and meekness. Remember Peter? He's always saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing at the right time, wrong time with the wrong people. I mean, he, he just, he would always open mouth and insert foot. And he would always move and do something to Jesus. Come on, just slow down, man. You know, you're going to drown. i got to pull you up. Lops off a shoulder's, it whops off a soldier's ear. And Jesus, oh, gee, has to pick it up and put it back on the guy's head and says, listen, this is not what we're about right now. You know, I mean, he always had to do this stuff. And then decades later, what do we read in 1 Peter chapter 5? He's writing to the church. He's writing to us. And he says, therefore... Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God who will lift you up in proper time. And you're going, is this the same guy? Yeah, it is. How does that happen? How does he go from this, you know, this, this wild man to this humble man who starts telling us about being humble? How does that happen? Well, how about Peter? How about, how about James and John? You can read their story in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, where they go into Samaria, and they were not well received. They wanted to go in and set up and do this pre-crusade thing. And then Jesus comes, and they probably won't let him stay at the Samaritan Hilton. They don't receive them. So they get all fired up. Now understand, their nicknames are the Sons of Thunder. 
So, you know, they probably carried a big stick and they talked big and did all of this stuff. And so they're going through and they're ticked. They're fired up. And they go to Jesus. Jesus, should we just call down some fire from heaven and thunder from heaven on them? As a matter of fact, we'll bring our own thunder. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, no, no. Cool your jets, guys. That's not what we're about. That's not how we're going to roll here. It's a gentle response. It's a meek response. Jesus could have been angry, and he could have. He could have gone. But he says, no, that's, that's not what we're about. Isaiah prophesied this about Jesus in Isaiah 42.3. He says, the Messiah, he will not break a bruised reed, a little reed that's bent over and about to die. He'll not break it. He says he will not put out a smoldering wick, but he will faithfully bring justice. Have you ever seen a little wick? It's just almost, it's just smoking. See, Jesus doesn't come to people and go, oh, you're broken, you're about done. <laughs> I think I'll just stomp you out here. No, he comes and he touches and he heals. A smoldering wick that's just barely got smoke coming out of it. He doesn't say, oh, you're about done. You're about burned out. I think I'll just douse you with the last bucket and put you out of your misery. No, he's a compassionate. He's a kind. He's a God of meekness that uses his power for good. Well, Peter, out of control most of the time, James and John, the sons of thunder. Now, James is, uh, John is transformed into what is called the apostle of love. The apostle John, remember, he wrote the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the revelation. If you read those books, the overriding words and themes of them is simply this, faith in God and the love of God and the love of people. How do you go from a son of thunder to the apostle of love? from the one that wants to call down hell from heaven on people? How do you go from a guy that just always opens his mouth all the time and then he starts talking about just humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he can raise you up? How do you do that? You do it this way. Time with Jesus. You hang around Jesus. It's a process. It's not a destination. It's a journey. Because see, these guys were still doing this crazy stuff at the end of Jesus' life. So, but, but after Jesus died, they saw him resurrect to new life. Guess what? They said, oh, this is the Messiah. And then they gave their life to him and they began to live their life for him as they walked with him for the next decades. And so over time, he begins to change them and work in them. Why? Because they hung out with Jesus. See, loved ones, that's why we talk so much about it here. Sunday morning is really important, I believe. But it's what are you going to do Monday through Saturday with what you deal with, with what you receive here, with what you receive in a connection group. If you just have this little Sunday morning squirmish with God, it is not going to do you much. That's what these guys did. The reason they were transformed is because they spent time, they hung out with Jesus even after he died. Here's another one, your outlook. That our outlook needs to be under Christ's guidance. Philippians 2, 4, and 5 says this, everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Make your attitude that of Christ Jesus. What's he saying? You know what? You put others' desires before yours. You look to serve others. Jesus said, I came to serve 
and not to be served. It isn't about what Terry wants. It's about what God wants. And without Christ's guidance in my life and my outlook, I won't see it and I won't have the attitude and the perspective that Jesus can bring to my life. How about our words? Our words have to be under Christ's guidance. Words have incredible power. Scripture says that life and death are literally in the power of the tongue. When we talk, we can give life or we can begin to produce and speak death. Our words are critical to building up or besmirching people. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no foul language come out of your mouth, but only what is good for the building up. The word is edifice. It's like, a, it's like building a tower that whenever we're talking to people, our spouse, whoever, it should be building them up. doesn't mean you can't confront. It doesn't mean you can't say some hard things, but in the process, you want to do it in a way that's ultimately going to build them up so that it gives grace to those who hear. Proverbs 10, 19. I'm going through Proverbs. I think I told you this a couple of weeks ago. I'm going through Proverbs fairly intensely again because I'm just, again, reading about how important our words are. I just want to wash my soul and my mouth out again. It's not because it's so bad, but it's so easy to, to just to start talking. Scripture says in Proverbs 10, 19, where there are many words, sin is unavoidable. And I know you're thinking, yeah, whew. Some of us probably live there. I'm trying so hard. I, I got to tell you, um, I'm, I'm trying really hard to economize my words and how much I talk. And, um, and I know it's like, you're kidding me? Well, I really, I really am because this is what I find. Proverbs 13, 3 says that he who guards his mouth protects his life. And I find the more I talk, the more I sin. I want to protect my life. I want to begin to just economize how I talk because I know my words have great power. And I want to say, Lord, I want you to guide these. I want you to help me to monitor them, to modulate them. And I think it's really important for all of us to be, you know, just to be doing some evaluation on that. The, la the next one is expectations. I want to bring my expectations under God's guidance. We, we place our personality and our outlook and our words and then our expectations under God's guidance. How do you deal with someone who disappoints you? I mean, we, we've all had it happen. Doesn't it really get hard when it happens for a week, a month, weeks, months, years? What, what do you do? How do you deal with that? Are you gentle? And again, not thinking gentle as we think of like holding a baby. Because sometimes strong confrontation has to happen. You've got to get their intention. But ultimately, is it that you come with strength and power that's under control and guidance of the Holy Spirit, but you still come with strength, not to judge? Ephesians 4, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received with all humility and gentleness with patience that you accept one another in love. I suppose an example of this, the thought of this, Elijah, the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19, Elijah had his greatest day of ministry. He took on the gods of Baal on Mount Carmel, remember? I mean, he called down fire from heaven to incinerate this, this, uh, this sacrifice that he had set up as a test case. And God, whoosh! 
and, 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 then, and then after that's all done and he proves his point, he runs and he tracks down 700 prophets of Baal and he, he extinguishes them. And then after he's done, there's probably this exhilaration, the spiritual high, and then all of a sudden he hears this. Queen Jezebel, one of the most wicked women ever in the Bible, he hears that she's after him and basically put out a death warrant on him. And from that point on, it says that he starts running and he has this spiritual depression and spiral into spiritual and emotional depression as he's running off. And then he goes and and he ends up in a cave. And guess who shows up? God. Can you imagine how he feels? You got to know that he's thinking, man, I've disappointed God. I've failed. I've run. I've lost my courage. I should probably just turn in my prophet's license. God calls him out of the cave and he says, I want you to stand on the mountain. And all of a sudden, as he's standing there, God sends this mighty wind, and it's just blowing all over. And God says, Elijah, I'm not in that. And then he sends this earthquake, and the, 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 the mountain is shaking, and it's quaking, and it's getting Elijah's attention, and he goes, I'm not in that either. And then all of a sudden, he sends some fire and pyrotechnics. Great show. And he says to Elijah, I am not in that either. Then all of a sudden it says that Elijah hears this soft whisper. That he heard it. And that was God speaking to him. What I love about this, friends, is that God God didn't come to Elijah to beat him up, to ball him out. He knew he failed. He knew Elijah felt bad. He knew Elijah was in a bad place. He knows what he did, but he said, I am here, and you are not done. And he begins to just take care of him and gets ready to send him out again. Has anyone here felt just a bit challenged by these character traits over the last weeks? No? Okay. Um, we'll be done in a couple of weeks. That'll be good. Um, I have found myself wrecked every week, whether it's me studying it or whether it's Jeremy or Kyle sharing. There are days, there have been, I just, you know, sometimes I go, you know, I think I just ought to turn in my pastor's license. Because these, you know, I feel like, you know, I've I've been doing this for so long and yet God still comes and he's probing and he's he's working. I don't like it sometimes. Because more than ever, I'm realizing this is a process, not a destination. My biggest problems, and I'll say maybe a few of you, one or two of you, your biggest problems come because you think you've arrived. And this really is just, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. And you really don't do any, Lord, I, I, I need your voice to challenge and speak to me. I'm learning again, I want to be like the horse. That when I just hear this small, gentle voice of the Lord, 
Don't do this. Don't say that. Don't act like that. Don't go there. Don't do this. Don't be that way. And I go, yeah. Whether it's a little pull of my heart, by the reins of the Spirit, whether it's a little, because God's just saying, listen, I want to be able to respond. So I've been kind of wrecked by this. The last one is our responses that they would be under Christ's guidance too. Scripture says in Proverbs 16.32, patience is better than power and controlling one's temper than capturing a city. See, gentle and meek people, they respond, they don't react. A proactive or responding person is self-controlled while a reacting person is others-controlled. When I say other-controlled, it could be a situation, a circumstance, another person. And isn't it easy to be controlled by others' thinking, the emotions around us? But we want to be able to be people who are continually and consistently bringing our responses under the control of Christ's guidance and the word. The Bible uses in a couple of places this idea of being blameless and harmless. I, I want that to be a part of my life. And I believe you can only be blameless and harmless to the degree that you begin to allow this idea of gentleness and meekness to come into your life. This is what I know. I've caused a lot of people probably in my life. Sometimes, knowingly, sometimes I, could, I didn't know why, but to see red probably to get pretty upset with me. I want to be blameless and harmless. See, blameless means that you don't have any area in your life that could be held against you. To the best of your ability, there's no sin or there's no big handle in your life that somebody could consistently point out and say, that's hypocritical. That's what it means to be blameless. Harmless just means I simply won't harm. You don't want people to say, well, boy, he's just a really good guy, but in this one area. I, I want to be like Paul, who says, you know, I got a lot of power, I got a lot of authority, but I'm going to use it to build you up. And that gets hard. But that's what Paul did, that's what Jesus did, that's what Moses ended up doing. And I suppose one of my heroes of the faith present day that most of us would know about is Billy Graham. That's what he would do. Most of us remember Jim Baker and the PTL TV evangelist scandal and moral failure of 1989, where he ended up having an affair. He lost his TV empire, and he was in prison for misuse and misappropriation of funds that were given by his donors. He wrote a book called I Was Wrong. Now, the focus of the book wasn't, he didn't talk so much about what he did that was wrong in terms of the scandal. He said, this is where I was wrong. I begin to preach a prosperity message instead of the true message of Jesus Christ who came and gave his life and died and rose again on the third day for our sins. I started preaching prosperity that people, if you give, you'll get, which I believe is true, but not to the degree that a lot of the faith and prosperity preachers teach it. He said, what I did was I began to accept what other people taught and I bought into their teaching instead of going to what the Bible said and what Jesus and he said that's where I was most wrong he ended up going to prison he was in solitary confinement much for his protection and he said one day 
Somebody came in to see him. The man's name was Billy Graham. Now, what's interesting is, is this would have been, um, you know, over 30, uh, 20 some years ago, 30, over 30, almost 30 years ago. And at that time, Billy was still very prominent and significant in terms of being out there. And he had many of his people say, Billy, don't do it. Don't get yourself caught in that slime and people will look down on you for going to him. And he said, no, no, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go. And he went. Jim Baker said it was the first really Christian leader that had ever come to see him while he was in prison. Remember, Billy Graham had had close to 60 years of financial and ministry uprightness. I mean, he was almost perfect. So people said, don't do it, Billy. But Billy took him. He went. He saw him. He counseled him. He protected him. He walked with him on his path to healing. When he got out, he said, I want you to come over to my house. Stay with me. Have dinner. His wife abandoned him, divorced him when he was in prison. See, here's the deal. Man can't undo what somebody has done, but we can sure assist on the road to help people redo and empower them for what God wants to do in their lives. And see, that's what Billy Graham did. He has this incredible power and influence, and he could have stepped back and said, yeah, I don't want to live in the shadow of that stuff. But he says, no, I'm going to use my power, and I'm going to use my influence, and I'm going to go minister to this man. Jim Baker's back in the ministry today. He has another TV show. I don't know much about him, but I know he's back. He's remarried, and he's serving God. And he ties a lot of that in to this one man that used his power and his influence to minister to him. And here's what I want you to see, loved ones. That's what Jesus does for you. This meek and this tender but also strong God comes and does the same for you and for me. Would you stand with me, please, and just bow your heads? I want to just ask you a couple questions. I just want you to think about them. And today, where, do you, where would you need to apply gentleness and meekness to be power under control? Is there somebody you can help? Is there somebody you need to minister to, to use your power and your influence in a godly way? Maybe some of you just need to hear the small whisper of God today in your soul that he wants to speak to you to recalibrate your heart, to renew your spirit, to call you back to some of the things that he has said to you in the past. This is the power of Jesus. He's called the Lion of Judah, and he comes in incredible strength but he's also called the Lamb of God who comes incredible gentleness. Maybe today you need the Lion of Judah to do battle for you. Or maybe there's a brokenness in your life and you just need the Lamb of God to come and minister and encourage you. Whatever it is that's available to you today. And as you stand there, I want you to invite Jesus and whatever dimension it is that you need to invite him in today. I want to pray over you. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace.
I pray, Lord, that today you would touch us and let us become people who really exercise incredible strength, but under the control of the Spirit of God. That because of that, Lord, we'll be more influential, we'll be stronger, but yet gentler. Give us influence, Lord, not because we're passive and weak, but, Lord, because we walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. And I believe, Lord, there's, some, there's people here today that just need to know the gentleness of Christ. And I pray you come and minister to them. And, Lord, for those who need to know your strength, come and be with them and show them, Lord, where you want to lead them in that strength. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of your life and grace today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen.